Welcome to the Magnify podcast. Magnify is a platform at the intersection of faith, feminism, and fashion. During these episodes, we have conversations with dynamic individuals that we hope will leave you intrigued, inspired, and informed. The fashion industry has often been perceived as fickle, which over the years has left many questioning just how faith and fashion can go hand in hand. Here at Magnify, we're passionate about expressing ourselves through creativity, and in particular fashion, so we wanted to have this important conversation. In this episode, we spoke to Simon Ward, the now-retired Chief Operating Officer at the British Fashion Council, who's been one of the most supportive people of Magnify since we launched our first print edition. After accidentally stumbling into the fashion world, Simon spent over 35 years working at the forefront of the international fashion market. After accidentally summoning into the fashion world, Simon spent over 35 years working at the forefront of British fashion. His role included overseeing London Fashion Week and setting up programmes which encourage an interface between colleges and the industry. In this episode, Simon delves into his experience as a man of faith working within the world of fashion and how the relationship between the two is more powerful than we might first think. Let's listen in. Thank you so much, Simon, for joining me. And obviously you've been part of the Magpie journey, I would say, for quite a long time because we first met, um, I think, at an event called Christians in Fashion um, around seven, six years ago. I don't know if that... If you possibly have been that long ago. <laughs> um, and you were obviously interviewed in the very first issue and have just been a real encouragement throughout the journey. Um, so it's great to interview you today. Um, so I guess I want to start off to for people who might not know you, what was your childhood like? What was some kind of defining moments of your childhood? Yeah, I was born in Bath, uh, very nearly born on the beach in Western Supermare, but that's another story. Um, and But my parents in the Navy, or my dad was in the Navy, and, um, and yeah, we moved out to Gibraltar for some time. Then most of my child was in Portsmouth by the seaside. And... Um, yeah, I was fortunate to go to a school that I really enjoyed, and I learned so much. I mean, it was you know back in the 18th century or 17th century, whenever it was, it was founded. Was it a Christian foundation? I don't know, but certainly its values, um, you know, were rock solid. And yeah, I learned how to appreciate other people, you know, how to do my best, how to not get too cut up when things didn't work out, you know, pick yourself up and try again, you know, and all those sorts of things. My dad was away a fair bit. He was away for a year at one stage around the world um, on, his, um, on his ship. He was a good dad, uh, even though so he even though he wept up in London a fair bit, you know, as I was you know growing up through teenage years. So he'd leave first thing on Monday morning, come back on Friday evening. So yeah, I didn't see him as much as I'd like to, but he supported me every inch of the way, you know, with maths homework, with you know, come stand on the you know, and kind of wet day and watching rugby, and yeah, he was always there for me. And yeah, he sadly died just um, what, a couple of years ago, mm. and um, but he was really good. As for my mum, yeah, you know, she was um, a Belfast 
class girl from Ireland and she'd been a wren and um, she, was a, she was a creative sort of person. So I sort of, you know, the two parts of me, you know, I'm half creative and half sort of diplomat administrator, you know, organiser and all that. And I guess that's reflective from, from my parents and, you know, it was a place of, you know, great love and affection. My older brother was, um, he was five years older than me. He was 100% different to me. He went away to boarding school because they weren't quite sure how much we were going to move around as a, as a naval family. And, um, and yeah, so he, and it's actually to him really that I owe my, my faith, I guess, because I was taken along to church. Uh, I was going to ask, were your parents Christian or what was kind of your faith? Yeah, they were. Yeah, they were. Um, it was, yeah, a fairly sort of what I'd call a fairly traditional Church of England faith. You know, you wouldn't find them sort of leaping up and down with their arms in the air, um, you know, laying hands on the sick and raising the dead. So it's a rather more conventional Church of England faith, but still real. And um, I think my mother sometimes... Um, you know, grappled with some of the questions about how real it was. My dad was, you know, he was a thinking naval man and he'd taken this decision and this was it and this would be the basis of what he did. And um, my older brother was you know, a very keen Christian and he used to go on cycling holidays by himself in the West Country, visiting churches. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, the pack on his back. I sort of, and, you know, as soon as the clock struck midnight at <clears throat> when I turned 13, um, you know, it's a jack and hide moment where, you know, I was free, so <laughs> off I went. And, um, yeah, and I sort of did my worst as a teenager. I mean, worst was never that bad, but, uh, you know. It's really funny. Um, one of the things that I used to really revel in was swearing. And I say that with some amusement, although I really can't be with any pride. But there was one there was one or two words I've never used as swear words. And they were Jesus and Christ. And I never really thought about it at the time. But when I look back, and it's really funny when eventually, you know, I did sort of reconnect with the sort of the childhood you know, was it faith or not? I'm really hard to judge. You know, I was younger when I became a Christian for real sort of stuff. One of the things that God did instantly was take that swearing away, literally, yeah, that minute. Um, and um, I always find that you know, sort of a yardstick of his work in my life. Was that Because we actually, when we were playing soldiers, we wrote... Um, we wrote something called um, the Word Manual, and the Word Manual was basically a dictionary of all the swear words we used. I mean, I have no idea what it is now. I hope it's burnt long since. <laughs> uh, so it's it's strange. I mean, it's, it's a theme I can't keep coming back to. You know how you know God's on your case, and even though you might not necessarily have your hand in His, uh, He's got His hand gently on your shoulder all the time, and uh, you know. I, become increasingly aware, particularly as I look back, you know, had every step along the way. And, um, yeah, and, yeah, my brother, who I'd, um, you know, never had too much to do with because he'd always been away at boarding school. Whenever he was at home in holidays, he was upstairs in his study working whilst I was, you know, out sort of kicking the ball around and having a laugh. Um, and yet, you know, when I was up in London at university, he was in London doing his articles as a, as a lawyer, even though he didn't go on to practice that. And he used to invite me round to his flat 
Notting Hill on um, on a Sunday afternoon, and yeah, he, he, we used to just you know, chat live. Used to chat, you know, sort of faithy type stuff. And yeah, I know that he'd been praying for me every minute. I guess that I was doing my work, <laughs> and um, and yeah, although you know it wasn't directly with him in the room as it were, I think he'd sort of started to steer me back towards a Christian way of thinking and. Um, and um, yeah, how long have we got to tell? Because <laughs> um, we're going to come back to faith a little bit after. But firstly, what's a surprising fact about you? Um, I love ice cream, but restrict myself to eating it to a Saturday night. Oh wow, that very specific time of freedom. Um, secondly, if you could have a dinner party with anyone in history or present, which three guests would you definitely want to have? I think one of my guests would be William Wilberforce, um, who, you know, back in the 19th century, spent the best part of 25 years battling the slave trade. And it cost him his health. It cost him the respect of a lot of people, but he stuck with it. I did actually, I mean, as, as, as someone who aspired to be a singer, I did actually have my have the autograph signed once by Luciana Pavarotti. Oh, wow. Finally, um, what is your favourite sport um, that helps you kind of switch off when you watch it? Um, the one thing that helps me to really transform into a different place is actually music, listening to music. But if it must be sport, um, I can't stand watching games where I'm involved. So if it's England playing, because I'm English, I just can't watch it. I just cause I can't do anything about it. You know, I, can, I can't shout with the crowd because I'm not in the ground. I can't do anything on the field because I'm not on the field. Um, and the idea of, sort of shouting at a television screen is a bit dark. So I generally sit up in my study doing something else, but just having it in the corner um, so I can see what, how the results go. But it's interesting because you obviously said you were very sporty, um, very much, you know, into pretending to be a soldier. Um, but how did you then end up in fashion? Because it seems like a big jump. <laughs> yeah, I <clears throat> I tried to join the army, but they didn't want me. Um, and that's a story in its own right, which we haven't got time for now. Um, but suffice it to say, on the crucial final final morning of the um, the sort of the week of interviews and trials and whatever, um, we'd had a dinner the night before, and I'd rather overdone it, so I wasn't feeling the best. And we had to do an obstacle course, part of which was going on a zip wire over a bog. And no one told me that you always go hands first when you're upside down, lifting yourself across. I went feet first. That's virtually impossible. And the combination of Trinity something impossible um, when you were feeling very below your best sort of stuff. Of course, I just fell off straight into the bog, uh, so that didn't bode well. Anyway, that didn't work. <laughs> um, yeah, when I came up to London, I discovered um, that I'd got a singing voice and so started training my voice in my own spare time as an opera singer and spent about the next 10 or 12 years trying to pursue that and um, yeah, studying privately and that didn't work out. That's another story I'll come back to. Um, but to pay the bills, initially I went to work in Selfridges in the menswear department and uh, got a little bit bored doing that and applied for a job with uh, a trade association called the British Clothing Industry Association. Uh, this is back in the early 1980s and that basically looked after the the interests of British clothing manufacturers back in the days when we had a large clothing industry in this country. Um, I left that uh, for about 18 months to try my hand 
as um, <clears throat> as an opera singer, and um, and partway through that, bumped into the person who's now my wife, and uh, you know, asked her dad, you know, about marrying him. He said, "Well, you can't have a hand until you get yourself a proper job, mate." So I looked for a job, applied back to my old boss for a reference for a job I was going to apply for. He said, "I'm not going to give you a reference, um, but I want to give you your job back because we're just about to take on running this organisation called the British Fashion Council, uh, and I think you might be the right person to sort of be our main contact for it." And um, and so yeah, I found myself. Yeah, you know, this was back in 1985. Um, yeah, working on the basically the, the creation of the British Fashion Council, uh, and we as the British Clothing Industry Association, as it was, um, provided the secretariat for it, and and yeah, and, and so on. So yeah, I became involved. Yeah, you know, at the beginning of 1986 with London Fashion Week, working with the designers, and all that's flowed from that since. In those days, still wanting. To an opera singer and uh, you wrestle then with the reality of you were obviously good at your job and you were given opportunities there but then wanting to do something else how did you know it was right to kind of stick at the path that you were on well I the job was really a job I didn't really think about it too much. I just turned up, did it, and I sort of lived for, you know, I used to go at lunchtime to have a singing lesson up in Crouch End, up in North London, as my singing teacher and so on. So um, it sort of, yeah, really had to flow. And after that, when I decided that by that time I was married, I'd then got some children on the way and that, the financial and social difficulties of trying to forge a career in this very dodgy arena of opera, alongside the fact that as a big voice tenor, I'd never never really got the top end of my voice 100% locked down, which is crucial because those are the money notes. That's what people want to come to listen to the tenor. Um, that coincided with, you know, sort of um, really starting to own my faith properly. And I, we took over running the children's work at our local church here, which was a big work. And I persuaded the church to employ a full-time director of children's ministry which was quite new in those days and uh, I persuaded the church to do that they then went and appointed point, somebody else and so you know I'd wanted to join the army hadn't worked out I'd wanted to become an opera singer hadn't worked out I'd wanted to become um, you know sort of full-time worker working with kids which I absolutely loved doing didn't work out um, around about that time you know my boss you know, uh, the, you know, the BCIA, Straight British Fashion Council, said, well, son, at some point, you know, you're into your 30s now. Um, are we going to get all of you at some point? And um, it wasn't consciously a sort of, what I'd say, a sort of a God-awareness decision, but I sort of thought, well, all these other things I would really have loved to have done, which hadn't come to pass. Uh, I've had a great great time you know pursuing them and doing them but they haven't and I said yeah okay and it was quite entertaining that without having applied for a job or yeah within the world of fashion um you know in 25 years I found myself you know being made the administrator of the British Fashion Council then the head of operations then joint chief executive chief operating officer uh in a job which yeah I'd never particularly wanted to do certainly never studied for and um <clears throat> yeah people say yeah how did you discover fashion I think I did discover fashion. I think fashion found me. <laughs> and, yeah, looking back on it, 
Um, yeah, clearly that was where God wanted me. And in a, in a funny old way, all the different things I'd done leading up to then uh, were actually his rather peculiar way of equipping me for the job I had to do. Uh, and because you know I hadn't studied fashion because I was a typical fashion person, I didn't get sort of so drawn in by the whole fashion thing, darling, um, that I didn't do the job properly. I could distance myself from the emotion and the passion that surrounds fashion. And if anyone ever says the phrase, a passion for fashion, I shall shoot them. <laughs> uh, it's an obvious phrase. I must have heard it about 94,000 times, uh, particularly from young people coming to try to suggest that you might like to support them in what they're doing. Um, but no, yeah, I, I enjoyed fashion. I like the people in the world of fashion. I like clothes, etc. cetera. Uh, and certainly when talking to other people, I say, oh, it must have been amazing. And you tell a few of the stories. And so it was amazing. Never particularly felt like that to me. I, it always felt like a job, but a job that I enjoyed doing most of the time. Uh, and the job that I could see was actually really valuable and increasingly so. So obviously, before you retired, you had the position as Chief Operating Officer. Um, from then and kind of looking back on your career in fashion, what were some of the highlights um, and also some of the main challenges? One of the, the proudest moments, I guess, was <clears throat> when... Um, when we'd been at holding London Fashion Week outside the Natural History Museum and decided we really needed to move on. Um, and I literally spent a few days in a car going around with the um, the guy who looked after all the sort of the on-site logistics and whatever, looking at every space in London that we might be able to put London Fashion Week, including you know buildings, including sites where we could put up their own structures and whatever. And, um, and we came to Sunset House. And we were looking around, and it's a you know, terrific place. You know, we've been in, we've been in a tent outside the Natural History Museum, which is a nice black backdrop, but it was beside the Cromwell Road, and you know, um, and whatever. And you know, the main show tent was in a car park, uh, <laughs> which was rather got you know laughed at compared with you know in Paris, the, the Louvre, and so on and so forth. And um, whilst I was looking around the um, the sites, you know, we we came up to a big old staircase, and I said, "Oh, what's up there?" And um, I said, oh, it's some, some spaces we're redeveloping office space. And I said, oh, can I have a look? Really? Uh, so up I went. I said, mm-hmm. anyway, top and bottom was we moved at the same time. This is back in 2009, I think it was, both the British Fashion Council and London Fashion Week into the offices and on site at, um, at Somerset House. And Caroline uh, Rush and myself, who were joint CEO at that time, when we were sort of relatively newly appointed before we divided it into CEO and CEO. Um, we were standing at the top of the courtyard there with our new sort of you know, event behind us, our offices up there you know, and so on. And uh, it's a lovely sunny morning on the Friday morning when everyone arrived for the beginning of Fashion Week at this new place. And as people were coming up, they were all going, wow, mm-hmm. this is amazing. Hasn't London come of age? And Caroline and I sort of looked at each other, <clears throat> gave each other a little wink and felt our chests were sort of expanding tenfold because yeah, one of the first things we had done as newly appointed joint CEOs was move London Fashion Week, move the BFC to a whole new level. And um, yeah, I think whilst at the end of the day it's about the designers and you know what they're doing what they're selling actually <clears throat> the framework that we could give them you know really meant that people could start to take British designers and British fashion that bit more seriously so that was a hugely proud moment um, and then a challenging moment 
Yeah, I mean, the two that I quite often quote, in fact, there's three really. One was when uh, a couple of um, models died in South America and the whole world, the world's press were on the case of the, the fashion weeks around the world saying that um, it's your fault that the, the, the completely unrealistic <clears throat> um, ideals that you're expecting for models and you know, young women around the world try to emulate them um, are leading to people having eating disorders, anorexia, and now people are starting to die from it in very high-profile ways. And it was interesting that you know, some of the other fashion weeks, without naming any names, obviously looked upon it as a sort of you know, a press problem to try and get people off their backs. Said they're going to do this, that and the other, which, to be frank, they quite clearly didn't really have the ability to, but it was a press story. Um, but in London, we, um, you know, it was interesting. The night before we had a board meeting, I was sitting at home scratching my head as one of the directors of the business, the BFC, and um, <clears throat> I was... Um, you know, sort of chatting to, to God quietly about it. So, you know, this is, you know, it's not a good place to be. And a few people had grabbed me, you know, jerks and said, you know, well, hold on, you work in fashion, people are dying, what's going on? And I just got this sense that, you know, this was a resignation issue. If we didn't take it seriously in London, if we didn't look at it to try to, okay, we can't solve everything, you know, with a magic wand, uh, it's far too big an issue for that. But if we if we didn't take it seriously, how could I be part of a you know, senior part of the, that organisation? And I sort of resolved, you know, sitting at home that night, you know, that, you know, that if necessary, I'd step back from my job and that would have big implications for, you know, wife, home, small children and so on and so forth. Um, I went into the meeting and, you know, we all had our say and I said my piece and I didn't, didn't sulk, but I said, look, this is such an important issue for me. You know, it's what I'd call, you know, it's a sort of resignation issue, inverted commas, as it were. And, um, you know, that's thumping the table, uh, do it respectfully, I hope. Um, but we unanimously, as a board, decided, no, we're going to yeah, appoint a proper yeah, working party with Baroness Kingsmill, who was a renowned member of the House of Lords and chairing um, you know, sort of um, initiatives like this to look at what we can do, what are the causes, you know, what's fashion weeks can we do and so on. And yeah, that was a six or nine month process at the end of which we came up with a whole bunch of things we were going to do, uh, which I think people respected uh, that actually London's taking it seriously. So that was a challenge, but also you know, it was rewarding to see that actually now what difference did my prayers and my resolve on that you know, sitting at home quietly on that Wednesday night did that move something that board meeting the next day did that do something in a way that's hard to judge I don't know um, but it's funny how coincidences happen when you pray isn't it and <laughs> yeah, when you commit yourself to something you believe is right and I would like to think that you know God honoured that resolve that I made and that he did something now did everything immediately get sorted out and have we, um, have we got rid of that problem about skinny models and anorexia? Well, it's still an issue, but you know, at least we did the right thing at that point in time. But it certainly was an example of, you know, there was me on the ground with a particular challenge in front of me and I tried to use the biblical principles and, you know, the basic tenets of my Christian faith to put into practice, you know, how things were done across the whole industry and it was a huge privilege to be able to do that. Amazing. Um, so I want to talk about faith and fashion. So obviously with Magnify, often we get a lot of flack for <laughs> combining the two. Um, and obviously you've written a great book. I'd love to hear your thoughts on 
how you think faith and fashion can go together. What was the motivation for writing your book as well? I mean, quite a lot of people, particularly within church environments, um, you know, say, what on earth are you doing work in a place like fashion? You know, it's, <clears throat> surely it's you know, a, a den of iniquity, you know, the devil's playground sort of stuff. And um, you know, so it's a bit like passion for fashion. Oh, yeah, this one's one. And, um, and I genuinely, slightly mischievously, but I think there's a good principle there. So, well, hold on, should have a quick skip through the Bible. And yeah, in the beginning, God created, you know, he didn't do a business plan. So, you know, we have a creator God. Therefore, you know, fashion's part of the creative world. Therefore, you know, I would beg to suggest it's something that God approves of. And, um, and yeah, he, was, he created the seasons. So let's not start giving the idea of seasons a hard time. God created the seasons. And he created infinite variety. <clears throat> I don't know if this is exactly true, but evidently there's 110,000 different species of tree. Well, why do we need that many? So, you know, the idea that, you know, why, you know, let's just wear a T-shirt and a pair of jeans. Actually, no, I think God revels and enjoys in the variety and creativity and colour and difference of cut and structure and whatever. And, um, and yeah, and then when Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden and, um, you know, they bit the apple uh, and they suddenly realised their nakedness, uh, they reached for the nearest thing to hand, a fig leaf, uh, and God who came walking up in the cool of the evening takes one look at them and goes, well, that looks ridiculous and you're going to get cold. So he was the first fashion designer and ran up some leather togs for them. Uh, I think they look pretty stylish probably. So yeah, God was the first fashion designer. Um, if you then go into the book of Exodus, there's a whole chapter which is set aside to the design, the fabrication, the construction, symbolism of the, the clothes that the priests would use to wear. Now, you wouldn't think that you know, the world of fashion and clothes would get a big look in in some of those heavy books of the Old Testament, but there it is. It says you know, exactly how it should be made, exactly what fabrics, how it should be cut and put together, and what it meant, what it stood for. So, you know, it seems to me, and then if you look through the, <clears throat> the whole of the Bible, you know, there's fashion imagery, clothing imagery is used all the way through, and hey-ho, who was the first person, the first Christian in Europe? Um, when the Apostle Paul came over, it was a person called Lydia. Who And what was she? She was a dealer in purple cloth. So she was a member of the fashion industry. So the first Christian in Europe was a member of the fashion industry. Um, so, yeah. Now, does that prove anything? It doesn't. But I think the general principles are that you know, God is interested in creativity. He's interested in what we wear, the way we express ourselves, um, how it's made. You know, if you then hold principles of uh, justice and compassion, the way it's made and how we deal with the people who... A, are making it, and B, are wearing it, um, you know, I think it's a huge opportunity to try and be God's people in the middle of this huge, complex industry. And anything that's huge and complex um, has plenty of scope for people who want to exploit it to come in. And they will exploit it by ruining the planet, you know, overproducing crops and so on. They will exploit it by not paying the people who are putting it together. They'll exploit it by not treating the dye stuffs that go out of factories and turn the, you know, the rivers in China, the seasons, colours, because they're just getting dye going straight in there. Um, <clears throat> they will not be too fussed by the fact that where they tan leather in India, the arsenic they use pollutes the crops and the levels of um, cancers and so on in that area of the world are higher than virtually anywhere else on earth. Um, and so on. And the other end of the spectrum, 
you know, there will be the sort of people who try and get people to buy far, far more clothes they want. And, you know, I think one of the figures that came across a few years back when I read it was a £32 billion worth of unworn clothes in British women's wardrobes. Um, no, it's nothing against women, that's just where the statistic came from. But, you know, we're encouraged to buy far more than we need and the, the waste that provides. Well, there's an awful lot of people in the world who, you know, I've got nothing to wear at all sort of stuff. So, yeah, it seems to me that it's a place where there's so much opportunity to exploit an industry, but by converse, therefore, it's a place where um, not just God's people, but people of, you know, of good faith and people who want to, you know, care for their fellow neighbour and the environment around us, the world we live in. Um, that, you know, we've got a battle on our hands to try and reverse the, you know, water will always go to the lowest points sort of the stuff and, you know, the default position. There's all sorts of areas where I think God's people need to be in this huge industry, A, bringing creativity, uh, and again, using that creatively in a way that uh, honours the people who are wearing it. So I rest my case that that <laughs> place that uh, is really important, uh, not just Christians, but anyone of, you know, who cares about the world and you know, our fellow men and women. Um, we need to be in there tackling, because you know, it's a place where a lot of evil runs right. Um, so on your blog, you shared a piece um, titled Living with Disappointment and wrote about times where um, there were things that you wanted to achieve that you did and which you spoke about earlier. What, how have you found peace in things not always going the way that you wanted them to? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I mean, there's, there's this wonderful thing called imposter syndrome uh, where you sort of feel you're in the wrong place, where you feel that you're not equipped to do what you're doing, where you feel inadequate and whatever. And um, I think I had a fair dose of that syndrome because at the end of the day, I was at the top of an organisation that looks after the fashion business. And uh, I wasn't a businessman. You know, I'd never studied business. I didn't particularly like all the sort of the nitty-gritty mechanics of that, even though I'm pretty good with numbers and so on and could run our own business at the British Fashion Council. So I was certainly not equipped. You know, I didn't know all the sort of you know, the market values of all the companies and the stock exchange and all that. Had nothing to do with that. And fashion, well, I'd never, you know, I was used to say jokingly, and I used to chair panels looking at um, new designers coming through and who we should support. I said, well, look, don't, don't look at me. I don't know one end of a skirt from another, um, which is a little bit of an exaggeration. But, you know, I didn't train in the world of fashion. I didn't, you know, certainly wasn't a designer. I, I sort of never particularly, you know, followed what the latest trends when people said, oh, what's the, well, what's coming through this season? I said, we better ask something new. And they said, well, don't you know? <laughs> So, yeah, for, for some fairly good reason. Um, and, yes, yeah, so I didn't apply for a job in, in 25 years sort of stuff. You know, I found myself as, you know, the boss of a fairly high-profile organisation. So I, I sort of, and I always remember the day I retired and walked away from the building after, you know, my final farewell and the final sip of champagne sort of stuff, as it were, walking down the Strand towards the station to come home, thinking, I got away with it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, here I've been working in this industry for 35 years, this organisation for most of that. You know, I've been sort of, you know, one of the bosses of it for, you know, more than a decade sort of thing and whatever. Yeah, most people sort of, you know, looking to you as some respect and whatever. And, you know, I got away with it. And, yeah, I was pretty certain that if I'd have, if I'd have applied for the job spec I helped put together for my replacement, there's no way in a million years I'd have got it. Um, now, of course, in, in one sense that's true. In another sense, it's absolute 
rubbish um, because actually I'd been the history of the place. I had a touch and an understanding with people that meant that people trusted me, whether within the team or people we work with. Um, and it was quite interesting when we had a complete revolution in the way the BFC was run and um, and uh, sort of a new boss was brought in who did a quick sort of look around all the people we worked with and whatever. And they came up to me because I, you know, I wasn't employed directly by the BFC at that time. I was sort of you know, providers you know, to help run it, <clears throat> and um, and the new boss came up to me and sat me down. I thought this this is ominous uh, because some people have been got rid of as you know old. You know, that's the old school. We need to bring in new blood, sort of thing. And she sat me down and she said, "I'm confused, Simon." She said, um, "A lot of people." really don't have much respect for the British Fashion Council and delighted we're going to start doing things differently. Most people I've talked to identify you as the main person that they have to deal with at the British Fashion Council. Therefore, if you put those two together, you think that most people think you're a bit of an idiot. Um, but actually, virtually everybody I've talked to has a huge respect for you. And a lot of people really, really like you. I don't quite understand that. <clears throat> and um, I <laughs> see that. Um, and apart, I mean, you can look at that two ways. One, I think it was because I was not a typical fashion, you know, play your own furrow, you know, paddle your own canoe sort of person. I actually did care for people. I showed compassion for people. I never criticised people. I really gave my best shot and so on and so forth. But I would like to think that there was um, a certain person who sits on a throne up in heaven uh, who actually had his plans and he'd been working in the background because that's where he wanted me to be. Uh, and so um, I always found that intriguing and I still find it extraordinary um, you know, that people want to hear what I've got to say about it you know, so and so on and so forth. Because, um, yeah, I'm not making I'm not sort of fishing for compliments when, you know, so that, you know, I really felt um, <clears throat> ill-equipped for it. I think I was equipped in one way, but I was equipped in a totally different way. And I think that was what was probably needed at that particular point in time. So if I applied for the job today, apart from the fact I'm too old to do it and wouldn't want to do it, um, yeah, they'd probably want some of far more technical qualifications and skills and whatever. But for that particular moment in time, it's still a growing, developing organisation that actually needed some of a very different touch. And clearly, I was that person. Amazing. Um, and finally, how have you seen fashion change over the last 35 years and how do you hope it will evolve in the next kind of five years? Um, I never made it my job to sort of find out a huge amount about what was going on elsewhere, but I did observe at quite close hand how designers in the UK and in London in particular were developing. And um, it was interesting to see the way, you know, when I started out back in the 80s, that sort of everyone was doing their own thing type of thing. Um, but by the time, you know, Caroline and I took over running, by the time, you know, we'd, we'd moved on a lot and we're putting all sorts of schemes to help and whatever, there's a far more sense of a collective where people were working with each other, working together. And, you know, the stock of British fashion had risen increasingly. And as we took groups of designers to the yeah, exhibitions around the world and fashion weeks and so on, um, they really did work <clears throat> as almost as it wasn't a collective, but it was certainly, you know, they had a respect for each other and whatever. And I think that's an important thing, certainly amongst fashion designers. Um, they did, you know, they worked closely with each other, a lot of them had studied with each other. And that sense of, you know, working together rather than working completely in isolation as an individual where I am the only person that matters. Um, 
was really rewarding to see that. Um, I've also been really encouraged um, the growing number of people who are really pretty teed off for just the way the system works in fashion and are trying to set up their own businesses where they work you know, in, a, in a far more just way with people uh, who you know, try and add real value to their clothes, to the design, rather than just turning out a billion of this and a billion of that sort of thing. And <clears throat> in a sense, you know, that's where the big battle's going to be, I think, you know, the big high street retailers. You know, they've got <clears throat> shareholders to, to, to you know, <clears throat> try and give dividends to every year, you know, growth, 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 growth. And we live in an interesting day where the entire economy has closed down at the moment. And yeah, I do hope that what comes out of that is that you know, as soon as the drawbridge goes back down again, we won't just go back to the way things have always been, but actually we'll have learned in this period of enforced stillness for many <clears throat> um, to, to actually review, well, what are we trying to achieve here? And yeah, something has hit the whole world here. It's not just me and my little world or us and our little country. Um, there is an inter yeah, there's an interdependability, if that's a word, uh, around the whole world, and we need to take care of that. And um, and it's affected everyone, you know, from the British Prime Minister through to, you know, someone in the back end of South America or somewhere. And um, and yeah, in one sense it's a tragedy, but in another sense certainly putting, as it were, my God hat on is actually, I don't think it's judgment from God so much as a gift from God is to actually open our eyes to see, look, this is the world as it is. This is what you've created. And um, you need to review the way you do things, dear people, <laughs> dear my creation. And fashion, I think, is a key part of that. We need to look at how we, you know, how justice and compassion uh, should be at the top of the agenda rather than, you know, bottom line. And now, okay, the two have to sit together. But I do hope that, you know, as a fashion industry, that we can have learned that you know, we need to do things differently. Will it be grasped? I'm sure there'll be those who want to get back into the same old ways of doing things. But I hope there'll be a growing number of people, dare I say younger people, who sit and say, well, look, this is our world now. You know, we've got to live with all this going forward. Um, we've looked the way you and your generation have done things. And, okay, there's been some good stuff there, but you know, there's an awful lot of stuff you've really got wrong. And maybe this virus we're, we're seeing as we're talking now is is one. But actually reading at the moment, Eddie Jones, who's the current head coach, oh, yeah. his biography, which I find a really interesting book, and um, the clarity of his thought about how he tries to improve his team and the way it's done and so on and so forth. Um, I think it's really interesting. And I read Sir Clive Woodward, his book, when he was the manager of the England team that won the World Cup in 2003. And again, bringing really clear thinking brains. And again, it goes back to what I did, which was in management and you know, big picture sort of thing. You know, clarity of thought, how to get the best out of people is what it comes down to. Um, and in a sense, you know, getting the best out of people is almost more important than you know, whether you win the World Cup or not sort of thing. And I find that really interesting. And yeah, I, do, I quite enjoy watching other people, you know, non-England teams. Or I can watch the highlights if they've won. <laughs> um, yeah, just seeing that, you know, it's people working as a team, I think, is really great. And um, I, I love cricket as well, so I used to play that as well. And, um, and yeah, one of the things I, I did when I was, uh, I used to go as a schoolboy down to the 
the county ground in Portsmouth and all sorts of visiting greats were there and I used to get all their autographs and um, you know just having someone who you're standing beside someone who's achieved great things and one of the things I discovered in the day job you know I met all sorts of famous people celebrities people in high government in big business and whatever sort of stuff actually we're all the same mm-hmm. um, and people always think you know, these people are gods and whatever but nah, not at all you know over a glass of you know, wine or something they're just talking as much nonsense as the rest of us and um but you know i do have a huge appreciation for people who really focused in and tried to achieve something really worthwhile and have committed themselves to doing that and um that's the sort of person i really respect but not uh, if that means that they just then stamp over everybody else uh you know short of the art of life is to um and it's you know the words of um uh rudyard kipling's poem if and i won't get the words exactly right but it's something that no, I haven't got it written on the wall there. Something along that, you know, if you can, you know, walk with kings but keep the common touch, uh, or if you can run with the crowd um, but not, you know, not be dragged down to their level sort of stuff, then, my then my boy, you will be a man. Um, I think that idea that you know, whoever you're dealing with in whatever place, whatever environment, uh, you can respect them, you can work with them, but you don't find yourself, your head being turned, either to become a rough and tumble thug or to become, you know, snootier than that sort of stuff you know be your own person uh, and you know the person that god's made you and i guess at the middle of the world of fashion that's something that's really important don't be taken in by an image uh, which is essentially false where you're trying to be something which isn't necessarily yourself actually find who you are find your identity and then live that out to the full and don't let it be shifted amazing thank you so much simon i'm so so grateful for your time Thanks so much for joining us for this episode. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you know anyone who might benefit from this, go ahead and share this with them. Also, don't forget to rate and review. It really helps us out. See you next time.